1917, Tsar Nicholas and his royal family were on the brink of catastrophe. The sudden violence of the Russian Revolution stripped the Tsar of his power. The entire royal family was brutally murdered. A legend endures, however, that the Tsar's youngest daughter, Anastasia, escaped the massacre and is still alive today. In February 1920, a half-dead person was dragged from a Berlin canal. It was a young, unidentified woman who appeared about 20 years old. She seemed frightened and bewildered and refused to reveal her identity to the doctors. After two years of silence, she claimed she was the Grand Duchess Anastasia. Recently, compelling new evidence has added support to the claim that Anna Anderson Manahan is the Grand Duchess Anastasia. How shall I tell you who I am? In which way? Can you tell me that? Can you really prove to me who you are? Would you like to see a happy resolution of this matter in your lifetime? I spit on And the fact remains with Anastasia, or Anna Anderson, or whoever the hell she is, we will never know. It is now too late. It doesn't. Have you heard the story of... And written on the wall... And everyone blood. has the different stories of, oh, this happened to my brother, this happened to my brother. telling you stories of the old... Family. There was this girl. It was back when we were little kids. To find out the truth regarding one of the most enduring tales in American lore. A story behind the story. Because it's just a story. Hello and welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our myths and misdeeds, fears and fables say about us as humans. Welcome back all of our wonderfully lovely listeners. Hi, I missed you. I've been thinking about you and just wondering how you're up to. Oh, you really shouldn't. You shouldn't tell people that. Why? It's like... It's kind of creepy. It's not creepy, but it's nice. It's not like I was thinking murdery murder thoughts about them. That's what stalkers say. I would never think murdery murder thoughts. We have had lots of people reaching out to us, you know, just recommending our show, and we really appreciate it. A few of those people like Paul Colborn, BT Schweitzer, and we also had uh, Joe Galvin reach out. You know, he sent us a great email with a bunch of Illinois urban legends. We cannot wait to do that one. Yes, yeah, so we've got a lot of stuff planned over the next few months that I think you're going to be excited about. Including our one-year anniversary. Mm. Oh my goodness. 52 weeks of this, you guys? Come on, you can do better. No, you can't. Just kidding. Just kidding. You're in the right place. We're so happy to have you. I've been thinking about you. Samantha. (laughs) So if you want to send us some ideas about urban legends and the things you grew up with or interested in, you can reach out to us at Twitter at JustAStoryPod. You can email us at JustAStoryPod at gmail.com. Or you can call the Urban Legend Hotline. I finally had a red phone installed. Would you like the number for the Urban Legend Hotline? Of course. It's 512-222-3375. So we look forward to hearing from you. And, you know, I want to give out a shout out to another new podcast that I absolutely love. What's that? It's called The Most Wonderful Wonder. 
That sounds wonderful. It's wonderful. It really is. And they describe it as a joyride down history's back roads, past bizarre spectacles of tragedy, folklore, and strange true tales. And so they're both uh, musicians as well, but they play like old music, some original music, all kind of based around the stories they're telling too. So they provide their own original score for the episode. Do they sing the story is what I want to know. They're not singing the story. I'm Uh, sorry. Okay. One day. Okay. So I'm going to check out The Most Wonderful Wonder and everybody else should too. And if you're in the market for a different podcast, if you're thinking about trying out something new, we've got another little little side piece called Audio Dime Museum. And it is an experimental historical audio drama storytelling podcast. And we are focusing on the weird world of the circus on this season. So you can find us on iTunes. Just check out Audio Dime Museum. We would encourage you to rate and review either... Audio dime, or just a story, or both, if you're feeling really, really engaged. So, you know, Sam, back to the story at hand. Okay. We have a story brought to us by none other than... Russian royalty? Yes. And Leonard Nimoy. And Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> Which is basically the same thing. Now, of course, he did not come and tell us the story because, well, he can't. And every wonderful 80s kind of documentary show <laughs> that was... <laughs> On. Well, let's call it speculative well, fiction. Sure. Uh, you know, unsolved mysteries, all of that wonderful things. And it's the story of Anastasia. Oh, yes. This was featured everywhere. I remember, actually, my grandmother told me this story. My grandmother, who used to read to me all the time, who loved history. One day I saw a book on her coffee table, and it was uh, Nicholas and Alexander. And I was interested and ask her about it and she told me the story of the Romanovs and she told me that for years and years they believed that one of the daughters escaped and her name was Anastasia and it was the first time I'd ever heard that name and it was the first time I'd ever heard that story and it always sort of stuck with me. So I guess the question is, is it just a story? Is it just a story? Who knows? But to really delve into the story, we've got to have a history lesson. Professor Sam... Do you you have your tweed jacket? I have my tweed jacket. It has its elbow pads, and we are ready to go, locked and loaded. So for the past couple of weeks, I have been learning everything there is to know about Russia. It's like a sentence. It's all redacted. It's just black lines. I've read so many black lines. I'm kidding. But I I have been learning about Russia. And I've tried to parse and find some of the more relevant need-to-know information. So I think the place to start is obviously with the Romanov line. So the Romanov line is the line that Anastasia and her family were a part of. Were the end of. That's right. They had celebrated their 300th year of Romanov reign shortly before everything came to an end. The Romanov line was begun by Michael I, who was elected Czar. That's during, interesting. Yeah. During the time of troubles, which I guess that you would resort to crazy things like electing a czar during the time of troubles. And that was in 1613. Now, another important person in the Romanov line is Peter the Great. He took power through heredity. So what made him so great? Uh, well, he, he was a ridiculous human. He decided he wanted Russia to be more Western because he spent part of his life kind of like traveling Europe as a vagabond 
bum sailor kind of dude, like hanging out and pretending to just be sort of peasanty, very Prince and the Pauper. And he went around observing various cultures in Europe and kind of took notes. And he came back to Russia and became czar and was like, you know what? I think we can do that. So he like created the ballet and created the opera and you had to go to the opera. Like it was mandatory. You had to go to the opera. And they had like taxes on certain kinds of facial hair. And if you wanted to have a crazy beard, you were gonna have to pay for that shit. We're not having all that nonsense. Austin would make so much money from that tax. (laughs) It's such a good plan. He was anti-hipster. He was very anti-hipster. But he sort of created the format venue for this new aristocracy to grow and kind of fawn over itself. And that continued for for years and years. Now, another thing that he did that's interesting is he structured the line of secession differently than it had been in the past. And he created the practice of allowing an emperor or empress to name their own heir during the time of their rule. And so, for example, his heir was his wife, Catherine. But this changed with the Pauline Laws in 1797 with Emperor Paul. And he said that we were going to do things right, we were going to have a strict genetic heredity, and it's going to go only down the bloodline, and it's going to go only from father to son. If there's not a son, it's going to go to brother. And if there are no guys around for whatever reason, I guess it can go to a girl or pass through a girl, but we really want to stick to mainly... Mainly the guys. We were yes. trying to keep the men, you know, like like civilized monarchs. Yeah, no skirts. No skirts. Just don't be silly. This is what we've got going on right now is, you know, at the time that we get to these Romanov. Another thing that Nicholas is going to be working with when we get to him is the fact that his father emancipated all the serfs. So the serfs are the poor peasants farming mud. Uh, basically, they're kind of like somewhere between sharecroppers and slaves, I guess, to use the American equivalent. It's a feudal system of slavery, basically. So in 1861, Alexander II freed around 23 million privately owned serfs. So what are you going to do with 23 million serfs? I don't know. And he didn't either. It created this new peasant working class that had never existed before, where they expected to be compensated through wages to be paid for their work, not with commodities or things like that. And so you are introducing a new economic apparatus on such a gigantic scale with no real system in place to ensure that everyone's needs were met. You were saying, okay, you're free, go be free. And they're like, okay, let's go get some work. We work for this guy, you know, like the person that previously owned them. Hey, dude, can you pay us to do this work? And dude's like, uh, no. (laughs) No, I can't. That's ridiculous. Yes, they were paid almost nothing. Also, you have massive industrialization at this time. And you have, you know, people working on rail lines and factories and mills and that kind of thing. And you have new cities cropping up. And the living conditions in those cities were really kind of deplorable. There's no incentive 
for factory owners or mill owners to pay their workers well because people are so in need of work that they can be very much taken advantage of. You know, there's a lot of stories of like promissory pay where they'll be like, oh, in like three weeks, we'll pay you. So the society of Russia was in great upheaval. Correct. And then, of course, the economy must have been completely just turned on its head from this, too. There were still a lot of exports. There, there was a lot of natural wealth in Russia. So the aristocracy and the top echelon of society stayed very wealthy. Like the landowners. Correct. Which, don't worry, they don't get away with it forever. <laughs> Doesn't last long. No. So dear old dad does Nikki a solid and emancipates the serfs shortly before dying and leaving Nicholas to sort it out. So Nicholas comes to power and it doesn't exactly go well for him. Nicholas is the, the Romanov family patriarch, just so we're clear, Nicholas II. And so Nicholas is in power, things are going along, and then in January of 1905, we hit a mild to moderate hiccup. Uh, a hiccup, you say? I do. It's called Bloody Sunday. Oh, I know that you too song. Father Grigory Apollonovich Gopol, who was an Eastern Orthodox priest, believed that it was his calling to serve the poor. He created a group known as the Assembly, which was basically a union for disenfranchised mill and factory workers, urban poor. And so he had this grand plan. He believed he could go to Nicholas and Nicholas would rain down mercy upon these people. That's such a noble thought. Well, it <laughs> is, but he had... Okay, so his reasons were not just... He seems like a good dude. His reasons were he is the little father. What do you mean the little father? He is the head of the Eastern Orthodox Church as the autocrat of Russia, as as the czar. Okay. So, like, Queen Elizabeth is the head of the Anglican Church? Mm -hmm. Sort of, yeah. But he believed that God had anointed Nicholas, Nicholas's little father, and that if his children came to him and said, Father, we are hungry, he would show them mercy and make sure that they had what they needed. Surely the only reason that this kind of condition is allowed to fester and get worse is because he doesn't know about it. Oh, right. I mean, he's just in his high castle. Yeah, ivory tower. And how would you know? Yes. Which to some degree, fair. True, but, in a way. But assuming that he would care yes. if he knew may have been the flaw in this plan, he decides that he's going to get the assembly together and they're going to go to the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg and present a petition to the Tsar. But he doesn't want to like catch him unawares. You know, he's like, hey, Tsar, Tsar's folks, uh, we're coming on Sunday. And we're going to give you this petition and just wanted you to know in case you wanted to have a camera there or like, you know, wear something nice, whatever. Like have cookies and cocoa yeah, ready. like what, you it's know. nice, just like, peaceful protest. Yeah. Of course, just, didn't really let that happen. Well, no. And okay, so it wasn't the craziest thought from the father that like, hey, no, we're the good guys. So they're not going to mind us showing up. Because they were not allowing any Bolsheviks or Mishkoviks or social revolutionaries to be part of the assembly at this point. They were kind of like discouraging that. They wanted this to be a very conservative, czarist, orthodox group. Because it was sort of tied to this religious institution and this sort of religious 
idea. So there's other groups, like the Bolsheviks. They're really going to come into play. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, Lenin's, Lenin's going to see to that. Yeah. And those are Lenin's buddies. Uh, those are Lenin's cronies. <laughs> okay, so they sent word to Nicholas. And they're like, hey, we'll be by Sunday. Just wanted to let you know. And Nicholas was like, ooh, okay. So lots of people are assembling, which, first of all, they don't have the right to do because this is Russia. And in Russia, we assemble you. He's like, but that being said... I'm a Romanov, and Romanovs have a nasty habit of getting assassinated when large groups of people gather in public, so, uh-uh. I'm outie. See y'all later. Like how, you know, the Romanovs never put together, there might be a reason they keep getting assassinated. No, because God had chosen them to rule. You see how that, like, eliminates all responsibility? Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's good. But since they were anointed by God and chosen to rule... Obviously, it was just people being assholes and not them. Go farm your mud. Go farm your mud and stop complaining. Hand me my pearl handkerchief. So Nicholas is like, peace out, guys. I'm seriously not sticking around for this. You know what? I bet if you tell them I left, just like make a big deal about it. See the words out. Tell them I'm not here and they just won't show up because they're coming to see me. I bet they show up. They do show up, which wasn't the worst thought. Again? Yeah, but I'm thinking about the name of this day, and I'm thinking it's not going to go well. It doesn't, but I can see how Nicholas was like, I'm just, I just don't want this to happen. I'm just going to avoid it. And so he exits stage left, and the massive assembly enters center stage. Right, thousands and thousands of peasants, former serfs. Striking factory and mill workers. Right. It's like your key phrase. And Father Grigory Apolonovich... At the front with his petition, bringing it to the palace. Just so sure that there is good in the world. Oh, that's so sweet. I know. And then, then the guards kindly reminded Father Apolonovich that there was not. They started shooting at them. There was no riot. There was no... No, they were assembling. They didn't have the right to assemble. And they were marching toward the palace, which could have been perceived as like threatening. We have some numbers. They're vastly different. So the official czarist government reports state that 333 people were injured and 96 people were killed. Like in Russian death numbers? That's nothing. Right. The anti-government groups circulated propaganda and pamphlets saying that 4,000 people were killed. That's a few more. Yeah, and then moderate estimates say around 1,000 people were killed. Not bad for a Sunday. I'd say it was pretty bloody. So I'm guessing that that did not help the idea of the czarists in power. There was so much going on. There were so many revolutionaries going around right now. Like we talked about, there was the Bolsheviks. The Minshkoviks. The Minshkoviks. All of the other revolutionaries. All the other Eviks. The isms. I don't believe in isms. And I'm guessing that this just helped all of their causes. Um, well, the optics weren't great. Nikki's PR team had their work cut out for him here. So what did they do? What did he do to try to get back on better feet? So Nicholas was like, what are we going to do? And, and his advisors were like, well, it doesn't look good, Nikki. It doesn't look good. And he was like, all right, I guess we're going to have to do something drastic. And they're like, what if we let him have the Duma? A Duma? A Duma. What's a Duma? A Duma was the legislative body 
uh, that, oh. that the people had been asking for. They wanted representation in government. They wanted Nicholas to separate his power, and they wanted to have more of a voice, which, you know, is kind of on trend. So try to create this kind of constitutional monarchy idea. Right. So we want to go from an autocracy to a constitutional monarchy. So Nicholas had been the sole center of power, just this one man for all of Russia. The czar of all the Russias is literally his title, which is amazing. All the Russias. Has all the Russias. Has all the Russias. I love it. So they're like, we would like a Duma, please. And he was like, okay, I killed a bunch of your folk. And if I can still has all the Russias, you can have a Duma. <laughs> and so they decide they're going to have the Duma. And Nicholas comes in and looks around and is like, uh, y'all some riff raff, no. And sends them home once. Then they have another, like, let's have a Duma. And he's like, okay, elect some more people. And he walks in and he's like, they are still riff raff. And you know what? They don't do what I tell them. They just don't listen to me. And no Duma. No Duma. No. And then they're like, Nicholas, you're a bastard. And he's like, okay, guys, like, can I get a Duma over? Yes, you can. So he allows a third Duma to be formed. And he's like, okay, this one will do. And they're like, it's all the same assholes you were working with before. These are not our guys. And he's like, yeah, but they listened to me. So he created his own Duma. Basically. And kind of defeated the purpose of a Duma. So again, not real good optics there. And then there was, like, you know, the Russo-Japanese War, which... Mm, where t- they lost, like, a huge chunk of China. China. Yeah. yeah. China. Yeah, just China, whatever. And that also didn't look great for Nicholas. So with all of this, all of this is taking place in the early 1900s. Correct. So when the entirety of Europe is just sinking into chaos. Or, like, rising into chaos. Like, I mean, I feel like it's it's... It's building. It's building. Yeah. yeah the ten, it's going up. And then you've got the Balkans right there. And what do they call the Balkans before World War One, Jacob? The powder keg of Europe. And that it was. So then we get to World War One, or if you were a British listener, the First World War. I learned that they call it that this week, and they think we're crazy. I still think we should call it the war to end all wars. Me too, because the irony is so good. Yeah. No. So this is going to get... A little geopolitical. I'm going to do the Eastern Front of World War One in a nutshell. Franz Ferdinand, Archduke. Oh, I've heard that band. Oh, God. No. They're good. They're good. They're are, we, are we starting at that low oh. of a bar here? Sorry. Start again. Archduke Franz Ferdinand. No, they're called Franz Ferdinand. Different Ferdinand. Oh, okay. Different Franz is assassinated by a member of the Black Hand. In 1914, in Sarajevo, he was the Archduke of Austria-Hungary. The Black Hand is a group of about 10 people, but they are based in Serbia, which at this time is called the Kingdom of Serbia. Austria-Hungary gets pissed at Serbia because of the whole killing the Archduke thing, and they decide that they need to declare war. But rather than just doing that, they send the government of Serbia, a list of 10 intentionally unacceptable demands. So it's like if your girlfriend's really pissed off at you. Yes, exactly. And they're like, you should spend more time with me. I don't want to talk to you right now. So obviously, because the conditions were intentionally unacceptable, the Serbians find them unacceptable. And war is declared. 
Now, Russia and Serbia have all kinds of an alliance. Very, very serious, very current. And so Russia mobilizes troops to Odessa the next day. Like the second Serbia and Austria-Hungary are fighting, Russia's in it. All of this is from that kind of rising buildup of tension in Europe that's been happening over the last 10, 15, 20 years. I mean, it's been happening longer than that, but really reaching a peak with all the alliances switching and changing. And Okay, I want you to imagine the most uncomfortable family dinner you've ever been to. Okay, <laughs> I'm there. I'd rather not be. Okay, you can tell like everyone is like, like just a hot minute away from getting one ass hair crossways and losing it. And finally, someone mentions a movie that they saw and your two cousins have a disagreement about their feelings on the movie. And suddenly you're like screaming about like, well, at least my husband's not in rehab. It escalates really quickly at that point, right? Like everyone's just been waiting for somebody to say the wrong thing. It's like, guys, we were just talking about the notebook. I hate the notebook. It's sad. It's happy. It's sad. Yeah, it's like the worst Thanksgiving dinner ever, where tension just boils over. But the worst part is, this is family we're talking about. And so, there's history here. No one really wants history in a shitty argument that's escalated way too quickly. But all the dirty laundry's gonna come out, and you're gonna see who your friends are. So now we get into the complicated world of alliances in the Victorian era. So originally... Gotta go way back. We've got the Holy Alliance, which was Prussia, Russia, and Austria. And it dissolved because of tension over the Balkans. Which, the powder keg. The of powder Europe. keg of Europe. Then you get to the Triple Alliance. And this is going to be Germany, Austria-Hungary, and eventually Italy. They're a little late to the party, but they show up. They bring wine. Who doesn't love the Italians? They're good guys. They want to join up. Cool. And they teamed up just to basically screw over the Russians. They teamed up to kind of keep the Balkans away from the Russians. Again, the Balkans. This is You're going to see this. It just comes back over and over again. So Wilhelm II is now the leader of Germany. He refused to renew the reinsurance treaty with Russia. He just kind of didn't want to. He was like... We're no longer friends. Go on about your business. I think they were like, hey, do you want to sign this again? He was like, no. Nine. Nine. <laughs> so who does Russia get to be their BFF? So Germany and Russia were like in a thing. And then like Germany was like, I don't want to be in a thing anymore. I'm not going to talk to you because, you know, like I don't feel like it. And these other guys seem cool. And then Russia was like, it's fine. It's fine. I'm going to go talk to this exchange student because he's, he gets me. He's deep. And so they like end up kind of hooking up with France for a little while, which is awkward, but you know, it kind of weirdly works. I would not have put that. I would not have like paired them together. You, you know? would think the whole like history with Napoleon and stuff. <laughs> you know, but, like they, like, France didn't want to keep making things awkward. So they like French kiss. They like they French kiss. They sign some stuff. They're like, okay, this can be a thing. Like whenever I'm in town, we'll hook up. It's cool. So they make like the Franco-Russian alliance, and that was in 1904. And then Russia has like you know some members of the royal family of England kind of involved in some stuff, but 
not in a big way, just like tangentially, but it was enough for them to like go to England and be like, hey, England. Do you want to come to my birthday party? Do you want to come to my birthday party? There will be vodka. There will be so much vodka. Do you want to come to my birthday party? It's going to be awesome. France is going to be there. They're bringing wine. And England's like, I guess. Are you sure France is going to be there? And they're like, yeah, France is going to be there. Totally. And they're like, okay, we can stop by, but don't tell anyone. And they're like, hey, everybody, England's coming. So the Anglo-Russian alliance happened in 1907. And then this party was called the... Triple Entente. Oh, so fancy. So fancy. There was vodka and wine and England's here. Everyone's like, oh, good, England's here. (laughs) Who told England? They brought tea. So, Triple Entente. Triple Alliance, Triple Entente, all still centering around the Balkans, all right there. Austria-Hungary had been occupying the Balkans for a while, and then officially in 1909, they were like, I'll just have that, and they annex it. Dude, I mean, like, she was my girlfriend. (laughs) You're like, I've been occupying it for a while, I might as well just go ahead and put a ring on it, right? And everybody was like, no one said you were going to make it official and they're like does this mean we can't see each other anymore and it got really messy so maybe this is not a thanksgiving dinner maybe this is like this is turned into like a high school this is turned into a high school like teen drama this is turned into degrassi is what it's turned into so austria hungary was like oh yes the balkans i'll just have that this made serbia furious because they're like uh, no we were we were going to share you guys, and they're like, oh, no, we're going to have it, and now it's going to be Catholic. And they were like, I don't think so. Because they were Eastern Orthodox. Oh, yes. and Just like the Russians. And that, yes. See, God wanted Serbia and the Russians to be friends, which is like where that whole... So the Russians were all in with Serbia, and they weren't going to let anybody be happy. No. So occasionally there would be like some peace talks... And the Russians would come in and be like, did you hear what they were saying? They still kind of do that. Yeah. Did you hear? Oh, my God. They were talking such shit about you. Don't believe them. They said they were going to be nice. Don't believe them. So they're like egging it on. So all of this high school drama is really what leads to World War I, where you have all of these alliances coming into play all over... This one guy that was killed. No, that's not really the only reason. It's just the straw that broke the camel's back. And it's also, I feel like everybody was sitting there going, well, just give me a reason. Just give me a reason. People wanted to fight. So all this is important because it relates to what eventually happens to the Romanov family. It is a direct influence. I promise I did not just make you learn stuff for no reason. I would never do that to you. It's going to be on the test. (laughs) Oh my God, can we give them a test? So, you know, we've talked some about the Romanov family, but let's kind of give a rundown. Like, who were they? Okay, so you have Nicholas II. He is the Tsar of Russia. And he marries Alexandra of Hesse. Like Hessians? Like Hessians. So she's the granddaughter of Queen Victoria. Oh, so ties to Europe. Right. And ties to England. Yeah, very directly. Nicholas also had family in the royal line of England as well. Uh, You know, how royals do. So then they had 
five children. The oldest is Olga, and they have another daughter named Tatiana, and then another daughter named Marie, and then another daughter named Anastasia, and then a son. Finally! A son! Thank God, a son named Alexei. They needed a male heir. Because as you remember, why do they need a male heir? To continue the line. Not just the name, but the crown would go away. Right. During their sort of like, we must have a boy quest, they got a little weird. Rasputin? Oh, yes, eventually. But he wasn't there in the making of the boy. Depends on who you talk to. (laughs) They consulted other mystics and like ended up making a saint in order to get a boy. Like it was like this mystic that told them that they had to appoint this little known peasant priest person as a saint and they went and like made a shrine and bathed in a pool under the moonlight near the spring of where he died in order to get magic powers and have the boy and blah blah. Also Alexandra had a hysterical pregnancy that lasted like a year between Anastasia and Alexei. Like that's crazy. <laughs> yeah. They had notified the public that she was gonna have a baby and stuff. She stopped menstruating, she gained all this weight, and then like they came in and they were like, uh, she's not pregnant. She was never pregnant. This is not a miscarriage. There's no baby. She's just having a hysterical pregnancy. So there's a lot of pressure to have this boy. And so finally, after four girls, four pregnancies, and remember, they don't have ultrasounds, so you don't know until the baby is in the world, whether it's boy or a girl. Now we finally have this boy, and he is most precious. And everyone in Russia is losing their shit. They're so excited. He's gorgeous. He weighs 10 pounds. He's big and healthy and robust. And then his umbilical stump starts bleeding and won't stop. And he's related to the British royal family? He is. He is related to the British royal family. And so he has gotten their curse of hemophilia. He has. A bleeding disorder. It's a bleeding disorder. In most cases, hemophilia, it's really like an internal bleeding disorder. You know, people always kind of think of it as like, oh, you cut and you'll bleed till you bleed out. And yeah, if you cut yourself, you can't have a lot of problems. It's more like if you fall, if you injure yourself, you'll have internal bleeding. Like they talked about him bumping his knee on like a thing that held a rowboat on their yacht once. And he was on his deathbed. From bumping his knee because the clotting was so bad and it was in such a weird place. Well, no, that's actually the most common place. What is your knee? Mm-hmm. Alexandra knew how bad it was because she had a brother who was a hemophiliac and he fell out of a window on the first floor and died. So she understood what she was getting into and she knew how scary it was. And then Rasputin. That's where we Rasputin. get him. Yes. Rasputin was this peasant who decided that he was a holy man. And this is not unheard of in the Eastern Orthodox Church. There are several prominent examples of this sort of thing where people are called to be mystics. And he's credited with clairvoyance and healing and all these other things. Right, he could like stop his bleeding. Oh man, I read some interesting things about that. Like people say that maybe being a peasant, he knew this technique that kind of involved like hypnosis and pressure and that kind of stuff that they would do to animals. And it was like a well-guarded secret in his village. They like, talked to people later and they're like, yeah, everybody can do that kind of thing. He credited the power of God and said that only he could take care of the boy, which brought him into the family. And it also 
ensured his ties to the family because he was one of the few people who knew this secret. Right, they weren't going to let anybody know how fragile the heir of Russia was of uh, all the Russias. Uh, the Tsarevich of all the Russias is very strong. We promise. He's great. He's doing super well. So why does he have all these sailors following him around? Those are his nannies. Really? What do you mean? They were sailor nannies. What do you mean sailor nannies? There were men who were dressed in naval sailor uniform who would follow him around and it was literally their job to catch him if he fell. So he had manis in sailor outfits following him around. Everywhere he went. He was in excruciating pain a lot of the time. Like it, He was in bed hurting a lot and I don't doubt that that was horrific for him. But it also sounds like he was a bit of a shit to be fair. Because he was just spoiled rotten? Oh my god he was spoiled and like and never disciplined and so it just made him like exactly what you think the Zadovich of all the Russias would be like. So Rasputin came to be super involved in his care. And like they said that he could stop his Alexei's bleeding by speaking to him over the telephone. Just bizarre. And to see the contrast between the royal family and Rasputin is sort of amazing because they look like exactly what you think princesses look like. You know, princesses and kings and royalty. And then you have Rasputin, who looks like he lives in Austin. (laughs) They had their own Merlin. Right. Yes. People talked about his coarse manners. He wore like all black and had a long scraggly beard, long black hair, and apparently piercing green eyes. But he said that Alexei would only continue to live so long as he, Rasputin, was alive. And that wasn't a threat. We all know what happens to Rasputin. <laughs> He's killed so many times. So many ways. So many times. All the murders. He's the Merlin of all the murders. But he is eventually done for in December of 1916. So I'm going to pause you there on Alexi's story. And we have Anastasia. Anastasia is who we're talking about. That's who we're getting to. Yes. One day. So Anastasia is kind of a badass. As much as one can be a badass. She loves sweets, and she doesn't care that her mother tells her, like, one piece of cake. She has, like, seven. Does that make me a badass? Yes. Awesome. They had this professor named Sidney Gibbs, and he was writing about the royal family one day, and he says that Anastasia is uh, short and stout. No wonder you like her. I like her. And the only one among all the family that doesn't have any grace. (laughs) He says she's a very coarse girl. One day, he told her, because she was raising hell in one of her lessons, to shut up. And so she started handing papers in that said, like, Anastasia, shut up, Nikolovna. She would, like, sneak cigarettes, and she would take animals in and teach them tricks. There are pictures of them over time where all the other girls are looking prim and beautiful and put together and Anastasia is literally crossing her eyes and like gritting her teeth and like making stupid faces like before it was cool. There are also pictures of them where they're all perfect and poised and Anastasia's in a dress, knees apart. She's cool. You just think she's cool because she's like you? She's awesome! I I would never have added shut up to my name. Bullshit. (laughs) So we have the royal family kind of established. They are there. They are being royal and fancy. Right. And for the record, 
Alexandra is the biggest bitch of all the bitches. Like, she and Queen Victoria could have a bitch off. Cut from the same cloth. And then you have the czar of all the Russias, who's very formal and likes military and order and outdoors and farming. And then you have the princesses, who are, or the grand duchesses, beg your pardon, and Olga, Tatiana, and Marie, who are beautiful, lovely, graceful ladies. And then you have Alexi, who's a spoiled little shit. And then you have Anastasia, who's kind of a badass. So you have our cast of characters. And World War I starts. Ta-da! So during the fighting, Nicholas takes his job of commander-in-chief of the military quite seriously. And he goes to the front. And Alexi is not ill at that point, so he takes Alexi with him. So he and Alexi are off at the front commanding the troops, in the thick of it, in the war. Which means... Alexandra is back home. With Rasputin? Yes. And people don't like that. They don't like the amount of influence that they feel Rasputin can exert. Because they think he's corrupt and coarse and horrible and maybe evil. Probably evil. And they feel like he's got way too much sway in the running of the country. Also, they really don't like Alexandra. And they haven't since she got there. They got married during the period of mourning with Nicholas's father because he wanted her to be crowned Tsarina when he was crowned Tsar, and they called her the funeral bride. So starting off at a good place. Oh, yeah. They said she followed a coffin down the aisle. Mm. Damn, Russia. She has British upbringing, primarily speaks English does not speak a lot of Russian, does not want to speak a lot of Russian, which neither does the Russian court. They speak French. That goes back to like Peter the first. Yeah. You know, she's an outsider. Don't trust her. She doesn't show emotion. Don't like that she's running the country. And then this time, as happens frequently in Russian wars, (laughs) there were massive casualties. You had people being killed for not wanting to go to war. Just the massive casualties of the war. They had horrible supply lines from all these... Busted up alliances? Yeah, exactly. Like, um, they didn't have boots. They didn't have guns. They didn't have food. They just were like, let's just send thousands of people towards them, and they can just pick guns up off the corpses. <laughs> and so you have these stories circulating among the people. And, and you, you have, have people who are just chomping at the fucking bit to get that shit out there. You know, you yeah. this is perfect propaganda. Yes. And then the the hate of the Tsarina. In her ivory tower with her evil magician. And then you have Lenin the agitator. Lenin the agitator. He's in exile in a gulag somewhere. In Siberia. Yes. But he won't be for long. (laughs) Spoiler alert. And so eventually, March of 1917, Nicholas is coming home from the front and he's stopped. And they say, hey, Nikki, we need a word. And he's like, yes. And they're like, you know how you're the czar of all the Russias? You're now czar of none of the Russias. <laughs> <laughs> Under duress, he abdicates. And he also advocates for his son. And he also has his brother abdicate as well. So now, poof, no more czar. No more czar. So who's leading the country? The people. Uh, there's a provisional government in place. It is not the Bolshevik regime. It's a, a lighter, a lighter version of not czarring. But of course, they eventually 
take power. Well, yeah, eventually. Spoiler alert. In case you didn't know. Spoiler alert. The Bolsheviks, communism, etc. So, while Nicholas is being unzarred, Alexandra is back at the ranch. She is at the Alexander Palace, which was their preferred homestead, and she's placed under house arrest, along with all of her children, who all have the measles and are kind of trying to die. Like, their hair's falling out. They're all running, like, 104-degree fevers. They're literally all in sick beds. Their doctor's coming and going constantly. And she's there with, like, one attendant. And now their entire palace is being overrun with revolutionary soldiers. Telephone lines to the palace are cut. The guards decide who goes in and who goes out. During this time, she burns a lot of her correspondence, her journals, things like that. But they go up through the chimney, and some of the pages don't burn completely. And some of it was preserved, and we still have it. But she tried to get rid of it. And so she's going kind of batshit. Can you imagine, though? Like, really? Oh, yeah. Like, home with sick kids is bad enough. Losing your czarship. <laughs> You're not Tsarina anymore. What? God, Nicholas. I knew I shouldn't have let him go to war by himself. Among other people at this time, Dr. Eugene Botkin is there, as always, caring for the family. Eventually, the family is reunited. Nicholas is brought back, which I cannot believe he even made it back. I can't believe he just kept them for so long. Well, it wasn't the Bolsheviks yet. This was kind of the intermediate. This was like, I don't know, we'll see. This is not the radicals that are in power right now. And there's still a lot of people higher up, like in the provisional government, that have some loyalty to the czar. So they take him and his family, and they shuttle them off to Tobolsk and put them in a former governor's mansion. And life there, it doesn't seem, to me at least, to be so bad. Like, it's not great. It's not as bad as it gets. They have pretty much their full staff. They still have access to, like, their luxury items they're treated okay. I just can't imagine that they weren't, there weren't any like attempted rescues of them or they didn't try to, to leave or escape. Okay, so you remember the alliance shit I was talking about earlier? Okay, it did matter because originally everyone's first thought was, we'll just go to England. Obviously, the Romanov family will just go to England. What else could we do? And it does seem logical. But the problem is England recognized the provisional government. Why, you ask? Because World War I really needed Russia to keep doing its thing. And so to hell with the fact that Alexandra and Nicholas are related to the royal family of England, we can't risk agitating the revolutionaries. We can't risk losing the Russian alliance by taking them in. So they were like, eh, screw you. <laughs> they were, and there are j- journal entries like from Nicholas that are like, when all is said and done, I can just do the thing I've always wanted to do and go be a farmer in England. He like just wanted to have a little house in his family and go farm. Guy's like King George. He so is. What is that? I think every rich guy just thinks like, if I was just a farmer, everything would be okay. And all the farmers are like, if I was just a rich guy, if I was just the czar of all the Russias. Even some of the Russians. <laughs> so this is when things go to hell. This is when the Bolsheviks take power in October of 1917. And as all great revolutionaries want to do, they want to have a kangaroo court. They want to p- 
put the czar on trial. They're going to put him on trial for Bloody Sunday, for all of these war crimes that he committed, sending thousands of troops without guns or boots or supplies off to fight whoever the hell they were fighting this minute. Do you know what they called him? What was that? There were two. Bloody Nicholas. The worst of all Santas. And they also called him Nicholas the Blood Drinker. Oh. And in 1918, they were moved to Yakaternberg, to the House of Special Purpose. That doesn't sound ominous at all. Not at all. And at this time, you had a Czechoslovakian legion that was very loyal to the royal family. And those people were kind of called the White Army. As opposed to the Red Army. This is really when things go crazy. Things have gotten worse. They got put on soldiers' rations, which was an insult. And they'd been banned from going to church. And they were locked up in Yekaterinburg in the House of Special Purpose. And it was very prisony. Like, they got 30 minutes of outside time a day. And Alexei had gotten really ill during this time, too. Like, Nicholas had to carry him everywhere. No more sailor nannies. They had to let them go when they got put on soldier rations. But he was issued, like, a rations card. It says, like, Nicholas Romanov, family of seven. So they'd had a live-in commandant for a while. On the night of Marie's 19th birthday, I believe, one of the guards made her a cake. And he slipped off with Marie to give her this cake. Little did they know that this was the night that the Bolshevik regime had picked to inspect the house of special purpose. And they find that Marie and this guard are having a moment and their cake. And they're like, fuck this. No, ma'am. This is lack security. So they bring in this dude named Yakov Yurovsky. And he tightens up the ship. And I'm going to start with a quote. It has to be said. It is no easy thing to arrange an execution, no matter what some people might think. Oh, he does not have good plans. Nope. So on June 14th, a priest was called and asked to say mass. And they thought that was strange because they'd been banned from having priests around or going to church or anything of that nature for a while. Because the priest accidentally slipped and used their titles when he was addressing them. So they were like, enough of that. Express, he wasn't executed. He may have been. I don't know. Right, who knows? Who knows? And so they call on the priest to say Mass. And so he was saying the prayers for the departed during Mass. And he says, With saints, give rest to the souls of your servants. And all the royal family sank to their knees. Like, just stood up, dropped to their knees. Like, Like not not a choreographed moment. Like, they got it. Yeah. I think they did. Yeah. They knew that they were being given last rites. I think that they did. I think the priest did, too. But then the next day, women came to wash the floors. And Irovsky said that he wanted to keep rhythms normal. He didn't want them to know it was coming. He didn't want them to get anxious. The grand duchesses were, like, on the floor, like, helping them move beds and on their hands and knees scrubbing with them because they were just so happy to have something to do. They were so bored. The women, when they talked about it later, said the girls were just so full of life, but not the others. The boy looked like he was dead, and the grand duchess was a skeleton, and Nicholas looked bitter. One of them said later, they were not gods, but ordinary people like us, just mortals. Yurovsky was summoned to Bolshevik headquarters, and they told him, the execution must be tonight. It's been decided. It must be tonight. Everyone must be executed, even the servants. And so he calls the military garage and orders a driver and a large truck and asks the guards to clear all the furniture out of a cellar room 
and decided that that would be a good place to do it because the stone walls would muffle the sound of the gunshots. And then they decided they should cable Lennon and let him know of their plans. It's unknown if Lennon ever cabled back. Right, there's no record that Lennon knew of this. Well, knew of it. They did cable him. Right. But did he okay it? Did he, right. like... There's, like, one guard that said he did. There's a diary. Yeah. yeah. But there's no official documentation that Lennon signed off on the execution. Because he was a careful man. And then Yurovsky, like, hand-selected the most ruthless of his guards. And he still had two that were like, no! Not just killing these innocent people? No, I'm not! And that night, everything just passed like a normal night. And Nicholas and Alexandra set up playing cards in their drawing room. And then Alexandra made one final entry in her diary. And then everyone went to bed. And in the middle of the night, Rovsky came and knocked on the door. And Dr. Botkin answered, and he said that everyone must be gathered. The White Army was near, and it was not safe upstairs. They needed to be moved to a cellar for safety so they wouldn't accidentally be killed by gunfire. Well, that's ironic. Yeah. It took them 45 minutes to get dressed. Because they knew what was coming. Well, they thought they were being moved. So they had on their special corsets. Right, which is one of the parts of the legend that everybody knows. Yes. They, the girls sewed in all of the family's jewels and diamonds and all that into their outfits. Right, into their camisoles, actually, is what it was. So it took them a really long time to get dressed, and nobody knew why, and it's because they were making sure that nothing could be seen. Like, everything was covered and tucked in, and they had all their stuff. So Yurovsky describes it this way. He says that Nicholas came first, carrying Alexei, both of them dressed in soldiers' tunics, and then... Alexandra and Olga came, and they were thin as rails, and Alexandra was leaning heavily on Olga. The other girls seemed happy and talked to the guards as they always did. One of the maids carried pillows where they had concealed more jewels and said that they were for the Empress's back. No one asked any questions. No one shed any tears. No one cried. And I kind of think it's because they didn't want anybody to, like, pat them down or make a scene. Like, I think they were trying to behave as normally as possible because they had all this contraband. Part of it had to be that, right? I mean, it sounded like the men might have knew what was coming. Maybe so. And so they had three dogs that had been with them this whole time, and the dogs tried to come with them. And Yurovsky was like, no dogs! Because I guess he had a conscience. Anastasia would not leave her dog, Jimmy, because, of course, she names her dog Jimmy. And she just picked it up. Even though Yurovsky's standing there telling her not to. She's like, this is my dog. You're an asshole. I'm taking my dog. And so they all go downstairs. And they go into one of the storerooms. They end up in an 11 by 13 little room with one single light bulb and a boarded up window. And then Alexandra gets mad. She's like, there's not even a chair. And so they go and get them chairs. Then Yurovsky starts arranging them. And he lines them up in two rows. And Anastasia's holding the dog the entire time. And he says, we need to wait for the truck because the truck's going to move you to safety. And he says, they still had no idea. And then he came back with the guards and he ordered them all to stand. And then he reads a paper that says, in light of the fact that your relatives in Europe are continuing their aggression against Russia, you are to be shot. Nicholas says, oh my God, what is this? And then Dr. Botkin says, so we're not going to be taken anywhere. And then Nicholas demanded that he read it again. And he did read it again. And Nicholas said, what? What? 
And Yurovsky says, this, and pulls a pistol. And he shoots the czar. Then he says, Alexandra died while trying to make the sign of the cross. And bullets bounced off the girls and Alexei. He said Alexei was scared to death and gripped under his chair. And the whole thing fell over. And he crawled to his father and grabbed his arm and shot him in the head. It's a 13-year-old kid. And the girls were trying to escape. And at this point, there have been so many gunshots fired that all the dust from the stone wall is filling the room and nobody can make out who anyone is and they're just shooting shooting at outlines they're like darting around and finally they're able to corral the girls into two of the corners and they're they shoot Olga and Tatiana and then in the other corner they find Anastasia and Marie but they're out of bullets at this point so they have to stab them with bayonets guns brutal it's not a quick clean firing squad is it no they're I find it just so ironic that they're like the symbols of the royalty, just the jewels, the the riches, the whole reason that the Bolsheviks are rebelling or trying to take control is in a way what saves them at first with the bullets to bounce off of, but then actually make their murderers even more brutal. Right. So then the dust finally settles and the servants have been executed along with the royals. There are four of them, Dr. Botkin included. Yurovsky goes around and checks pulses and determines that they're all dead and brings them up to the truck. And as they do, or clearing out the room, they find the body of the dog, Jimmy, and they throw it in with the rest. And that's discovered later. That striking, heart-wrenching depiction of the murder was from a book called The Family Romanoff. Murder, Rebellion, and the Fall of Imperial Russia by Candace Fleming. And if you are at all interested in this, I suggest that you pause, go read it, go read it 17 times, and come back. And so that story, the story of the fall of Imperial Russia, the story of the fall of the Romanov line, and the death of the family, including Anastasia, has been such a popular story over the last century so it really has gone into the level of legend it has and i think that part of that is because no one knew it happened there wasn't a telegram there was you know like it wasn't out on the front page news news traveled slowly and they hit it right a lot of these accounts that we have are very recently discovered accounts up until just decades ago a lot of this was still very much hush hush it was very in the dark and so i mean as we always do on the show you know you have to ask like why do people even care about the story of the romanovs lots of people were murdered lots of people were assassinated you know why is this so interesting i think it fascinated people at the time because there was a lot of good feeling toward the grand duchesses if not the czar barring that you take Nicholas completely out of the picture. And the Grand Duchesses were these beautiful, like, embodiments of virtue and youthful beauty. And they were fun to talk about. And there were four of them. And they were all so different and so alike. And there was just so much writing in popular periodicals and newspapers about them. They were kind of like, you know what? They are Princess Diana. Oh, they were the celebrities of the day. Of course, one of the reasons... That the story of Anastasia and the Romanov family has become such a legend all starts back on February 27th of 1920. What happened then? 
So this is about 18 months after the Romanov family has been massacred. All of Europe knows about it. It has finally kind of reached everywhere. There are news articles everywhere. There is great upheaval in Russia. But in Germany, an unknown woman jumps from a bridge into Landwehr Canal in Berlin. She's in her 20s. She's rescued by a police officer. There's nothing in her pockets. No labels on her clothes. And she is completely aloof. She will not speak to them. They can't figure out who she is. She has scars all over her body. She speaks German, but with a Russian accent. And they actually keep her in prison for six months. Prison? Why prison? Well, because they don't know what to do with her. Nothing in her pockets but lint and knives or like the Joker. <laughs> I mean, like... And eventually they decide to bring her to Daldorf Asylum. During intake, they announce there's nothing in her pockets but knives and lint. And then she looks at the intake officer and says, want to know how I got these scars? And she's the Joker. not the Joker. God damn it. End of episode. (laughs) So she is brought there, diagnosed with melancholia. Too much bile, obviously. Something like that. They tried to bleed her. No, they didn't. And... She's called Fraulein Unbenkant, meaning Miss Unknown, because she will not say who she is. She will give them no details. When they ask about her family, she says she has no family. But she really will not answer any questions. That's like the most they can get out of her. So she's a skosh mysterious. Just a little bit. She stayed in the asylum for two years. Okay, so now they've had her for two and a half years, correct? Right. While there, she did some really odd things. Of course, she wouldn't speak to anybody. She would act really odd. She did things trying to maybe change her appearance. She would pull hair from her forehead. She constantly complained of toothaches and had the dentist remove seven teeth, including her front teeth. So it seems like she's almost like on the run. That's the thought. And, you know, the nurses. And I love nurses. So let's be straight. (laughs) But they start, they start to talk. They start to gossip. They start to think that, too. They start to think this, this character is really, is really odd. This person is not like all of the other quacks, cuckoos in the asylum. Mm-hmm. There are several diaries and reports from the nurses talking about her. Mm-hmm. They say that she talked with them in Russian. They asked if she ever thought that she'd be able to leave the asylum. And she told them, not now. Not until times had changed. And they asked her, why not? She said, because she would be killed. She was afraid of being recognized and transported to Soviet Russia. Who wouldn't be? Yeah, really. And all the nurses described her as this very proper lady. She was cultivated. So she had to be well-educated and well-bred. She was gracious, meticulous in her habits, clean and charming. And they said she had very refined, soft hands. Interesting. And so they gave them that impression of an aristocratic lady. So you have this woman appear out of nowhere, obviously distraught, saying she has no family, continually trying to change her appearance, afraid of going back to Russia, stab wounds. Yes, she has numerous stab wounds. Huh. One of the nurses who was a former German teacher who had lived in Russia, said that she spoke Russian like a native, not like a foreigner who had learned Russian. 
Interesting distinction. And so there was, like I said, a lot of gossiping going around the nurse's desk. I can't believe. I I love you, nurses. One of the nurses saw in a paper, because like we said, this was like Prince's died. This was a huge news story that they'd been killed. And there were so many papers out and so many news articles about the fallen Russian Romanovs. And one of the nurses was looking at it one day. Flipping through her people. Yeah. On her on her coffee break. The equivalent. And she saw an image of the royal family. Kind of taken aback. Hmm. That kind of looks like a Fraulein Unknown over there. Holy moly. And being a sharp lady, she's piecing it together, isn't she, Jacob? Oh, yeah. Oh, and yeah. So she brings it to her. One of the nurses, Nurse Bertha Waltz, says that she showed quite an altered behavior. I showed her the picture. She'd become utterly sad, quite pale, and said, I know all these. As in the dead Romanovs? As in the image of the royal family. Oh. And so in autumn of 1921, the nurses say that she finally admitted to being Her Imperial Highness, the Grand Duchess Anastasia Nikolovna. Nurse Milanovsky remembered it, and that she was very upset indeed. She spoke of her sisters and the jewels they had sewn into their clothes in Siberia of the last night in Ekaterinburg, when a lady-in-waiting ran about with a cushion in her hands, hiding her face behind it and screaming, and of the leader of the murderers of the Tsar, who went straight up to her father with a pistol, mocking him with it and shooting at him. That's, she's talking about Anna Dimidova. Like, that was not common knowledge that Anna Dimidova had a pillow. Right. It is interesting that some of this knowledge was not public. And like the whole thing about mocking him with a pistol, like... That came out years later. Like, it, you can't find that on the internet. You have to read books for that shit. Like, uh, that's not even now, like, pervasive but, knowledge. But then it wasn't at all. They didn't have the internet. <laughs> they did not. <laughs> like, Thanks for clarifying I'm that. Sorry. Like, We've got the, like... What? What? This? This? And like shooting him, and we've got the pillow, we've got the lady in waiting. That's right. We have a lot of details that were not known then. The jewel thing, I imagine there was that some. Was, yeah, yeah. that's part of the legend that was out. Yeah, you know, people kind of question like, why did the nurses not come out with this? Why did they not go to the police? Why did they not go to the doctors? Because they didn't want her to get sent back to Soviet Russia. Exactly. They thought that they were keeping protecting their her. promise and protecting her. And so in walks a great character. Oh, I love when that happens. Clara Puthart. And she's described as a big, lean, bony proletarian. <laughs> Which I don't I don't think that's nice. Well, she's a very interesting character. She had lived in Russia before World War I. Mm-hmm. And she also had that sneaking suspicion the nurses had. It's hard to say where she got the idea. It's hard where to say. Where did she come from? Like she, she came- was a patient. Oh, well, that makes sense. (laughs) So it's hard to say if she got the idea from the nurses, she heard them talking about it, or if it was self-generated. But again, she was looking at some newspapers, some magazines that they had. And her face was pretty familiar, and she she confronted this woman, this Fraulein Unknown, Mm -hmm. about it. And Miss Unknown just put her finger to her lips, and then they became very good friends. After that, you know, these papers had this this rumor that had been going around that one of the czar's daughters was alive. Now, you and I have kind of talked about how would anyone survive that? 
Well, and so it, it was gossip. It was gossip. There were thousands of rumors. There were so many rumors about how she could have gotten out. And, and it wasn't specific yet, right? Like there wasn't the idea that one in particular had survived. It was just one of the girls. Right. And there was not one main story that came about of how yet. So Clara believed that she was the Grand Duchess Tatiana. Completely self-generated. She decided this. Once <laughs> she finally got out of the asylum, she went out seeking someone to tell about this amazing secret. As you do. <laughs> when I get out of the uh, asylum, the first thing I want to do is go find somebody to tell that I met a Grand Duchess while I was in the asylum. I mean, that's just what you do. And people are so going to believe you. <laughs> Obviously, because you've got cred. So it's important to point out that in... Berlin at the time and in Germany, there were a lot of Russians. You know, we talked about the alliances. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of Russians ran away. (laughs) Yeah. And immigrated. They're refugees in France, Paris being the largest group, and then Berlin being the second largest group Mm -hmm. of refugee uh, Russians. And there was a very large group of monarchists. Shocking. And they were the, you know, the loyal to the czar, white army people that were just waiting to retake Russia. I cannot imagine why they would have left Russia. Yeah, nothing bad was going on. Okay, so there they are in Berlin talking about the good old days when there was a czar of all the Russias. And in walks Lady Crazy. Yes, Clara. Clara. And so she goes out and she's trying to find a monarchist. Someone she can tell about this. Well, they're everywhere. Well, they are, but she finds Captain Nicholas von Schwab. He sounds very monarchist. And he's a former personal guard of the Dowager Empress. Of course, he's a refugee, and he's selling monarchist propaganda in the courtyard of a Russian church. So he's got some street cred. He's looking very monarchist. Yes. And to note, the monarchists were also like super anti-Semitic. <laughs> yeah, the monarchs were too. That's another strike against Nicholas, yeah, but whatever. Well. And, you know, they kind of were, like, all Nazis, too. But anyway. <laughs> Let's not mix evils here, okay? Claire approaches him and starts thumbing through the pictures and says, can I trust you? And he's like, of course you can trust me. I'm, like, sitting here selling, like, monarchist propaganda. And she's, you know, just making sure he's loyal to the crown. And she makes sure that he hates Jews. Good. And he pulls a, a swastika that he has around his neck to show her. Good. We are properly vetting. And she tells him. This is later recounted by him, by the captain. In a lunatic asylum near Berlin, there's a person interned who very much resembles Grand Duchess Tatiana. I myself am even convinced that she is the Grand Duchess. I believe this on account of her social manner, the noble cast of her features, and her well-shaped hands. How could she not be? With proof like that. He was intrigued. He did not automatically believe her or anything, but he was intrigued. So he decides... To go visit her. Okay, so he packs up his propaganda and his swastikas, and he goes to the lunatic asylum. Yes. Just so we're all on board. And he doesn't tell anyone why he's there, because he doesn't want any of the Jewish doctors knowing. Obviously. God, this guy's so smart. Which also, that's why Miss Unknown would not tell any of the doctors, supposedly, because she was so worried about the Jewish doctors, because they were supposedly, again, involved in the revolution. We're dealing with a whole lot of not crazy so far. Let's keep going. It took numerous visits to finally gain her trust. She would hide under a blanket. She would only face the wall. But eventually, with Clara's help, 
he was able to gain her trust. And he started bringing numerous monarchists to visit her. And they all kind of had differing opinions. Some would kind of be like, yes, she is the Grand Duchess. Oh my gosh, we can start the monarchy again. Yay! But then plain people were like, uh, no. She doesn't have any teeth, and she does that weird thing where she picks the hair out. No, no. Even if she was, God, no. And he says, everyone looked at her very intently and came to the conclusion that she was indeed Grand Duchess Tatiana. The only thing that puzzled them all was the unknown woman's smallness. Okay, can I just say, like, she looks way more like Tatiana than she does Anastasia. Just spoiler alert. Even one day, he brought Madame Unknown a Bible. And in it, he had written the Imperial Family's password. A code used to indicate the person carrying it could be trusted. And guess what she did? I don't know. She ripped it out and tore it up. My feisty. Later, Miss Unknown says, when talking to him, about all of the people that said she did not look like Tatiana, she states, I did not say that I was Tatiana. (laughs) And so one of Schwab's friends has a clever idea. And he gives her a slip of paper on which were inscribed the names of all the four daughters of Nicholas II. Mm Mm-hmm. And he asked her to strike out the names that did not belong to her. So she leaves one name. Mm-hmm. Anastasia. Interesting. So the trick here is to give her multiple choice. Yes. <laughs> and she can pick one. Amazing. So she starts to become known as Anna Anderson. Any particular reason? You know, Anna from Anastasia. Okay. Is one of the reasons. She goes by several different names. But that's kind of the general name she is given she wants to get out of the asylum because they're about to move her to to a different one that she did not want to go to that's when she starts cooperating amazing interesting right yeah suddenly she wants to admit she's one of the grand duchesses whenever they're about to move her oh you mean i have to go to a worse asylum where i can be a princess um i'm a princess princess right here so the monarchists are very split Uh, well Uh, shocking a, a lot of them want to believe so you have your molders, you have your scullies. Yes. Okay. One of them decides they'll take her in. Baron Arthur Van Kleist. Decidedly molder. He takes her into his home on May 30th of 1922. And their home kind of becomes a mini court in exile for the white Russians. Not the drink. What? Like a, a royal court. And they became super popular. <laughs> They've got all the white Russians over there. Go see them. None of those crazy Jews. Yay, party. Vodka, vodka, vodka. And a lot of people were like, oh, you're just doing this for, you know, self-aggrandizement. You're obviously becoming popular because of this. But also, you know, people are saying, you're just hoping that if she is, you're going to get some appointment or some money later on. Yeah. So? But they they bought into it 100%. They had a daughter whenever she was living there. They named her Anastasia. Anna Anderson stood as her godmother at the baptism. But she would not speak Russian. Why? She claimed that it was kind of like a PTSD thing. Like, she did not want to speak it. Well, okay, there's an interesting note to be made here. At the um, House of Special Purpose, they were only allowed to speak Russian because, of course, they all spoke English and French and Russian and German, you know, various other languages. And they were afraid that they'd be passing secret messages. So if they heard any of the royal family or the servants speaking in other languages, they kind of lost their shit and screamed at them. And so all of the communicating was done in Russian. And another interesting note, 
Alexander whispered to her daughters in English in the cellar. Oh. And no one knows what she said. Ah, great mystery. Because no one spoke English. That lived. Yeah. So, I don't know. There was some language stuff. Right. And then they say, they say that they would speak to her in Russian or they would read to her in Russian. And she would respond in a foreign German. Like she understood what they were saying. And even one person tested her by cursing in Russian and made her blush. That wouldn't have made Anastasia blush. (laughs) Point against Anna Anderson. (laughs) You know, she was a very sickly person. She had this terrible anxiety. She always thought the Kremlin's emissaries were out to get her and that the Jews were out to get her and were going to bring her back to Russia or kill her. And she was sick, too. She was diagnosed with anemia. She was pale and weak. She had a history of, like, some kind of severe injury to her head. So she had all these markings of just being through some serious trauma. The temperament just sounds more like the older girls. It sounds like Olga. It sounds like Tatiana. Just Anastasia was always super hardy. You know, she never had any health. Like, Olga especially was anemic and had, you know, all kinds of... We have to look at, like, if she did escape. Oh, my gosh. What was that 18 months like? And so, as she was sick, she was given morphine. She was given digitalis, which can cause dementia-like states. And this is when the story comes out. So, we have a former long-term lunatic asylum committee who appeared out of nowhere in the process of trying to commit suicide no identification no willingness to speak going through years of people suggesting yes not not even lightly suggesting like you were amazing for being the grand duchess anastasia congratulations here, live in my house. Have food and, and comfort and things. Just keep being Anastasia. <laughs> okay. And now we've given her the drugs of all the druggings. All the drugs of all the rushes. And she says... So what? many things. So many things. Does she talk about Jimmy? No. So not Anastasia. <laughs> she says a lot of things. And it's hard to say exactly what her words were. What words were fed to her? What words were written down by the Baron she was staying with, who eventually wrote this down in narrative form? Oh, thank you, Baron. So, like, something about this reminds me of the satanic panic so hard. Like, all the the way that memories get warped and shifted and everything gains significance and, mm-hmm. like, all right, I want to hear what she says. So Tell me, Anna. Tell she me starts. She starts speaking Russian in her sleep. As you do. She starts asking about things like, do you see the scar behind my ear? It should be round. And then, you know, someone's like, oh, did you get cut? And she says, no, it should be round, for it was no cut. Like a stab, is what she's saying? Or a bullet wound. You know, in this stupor, why were my dresses all bloody? Everything was full of blood. Yes, it was then, when the end came. That's dark. But Mm. this narrative that the Baron writes is really what becomes the legend of Anastasia and the legend of Anna Anderson. He introduces a soldier who rescued her, Alexander Tchaikovsky. Uh-huh. And she only knew about what happened by what Tchaikovsky had told her. She says, it was a dreadful mix-up. Then he saw that I was still alive. He did not want to bury a live body, and he escaped with me under great dangers. It was very dangerous. They traveled out of Russia in a farm cart to Bucharest. And she said, do you know what a Russian farm wagon is? No, you do not. 
You only know when you lie in one with a smashed head and body. How long was it? My God, a long time, many weeks. Tchaikovsky was really crazy to rescue me. What I went through. I was as though fallen from the sky, suddenly amongst strangers. They took my clothes off right away. I lay in the clothes of the old woman's daughter. And they eventually ended up staying with farmers and subsisting on the jewels that were sewn into her clothes. That's why she wouldn't have them anymore. Mm-hmm. Very convenient. I mean, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, you're right. And, you know, she ended up having his baby. What a lovely way of saying how much you love me. Okay. She's having my baby. Okay. Anyway, yeah, so what a wonderful way of saying how much you love me. Got it. And they were kind of married. <laughs> okay. There was no official documentation, of course. Well, I mean, like, how do you get a marriage certificate drawn up that's like, Grand Duchess Anastasia says it's totally cool if we get married without permission of the royal family. So they were telling no one that she was Grand Duchess Anastasia. Oh, no. So eventually, Tchaikovsky was killed by Bolsheviks in the streets. Yeah, I buy it. And so she... Really didn't want anything to do with this baby. (laughs) Left it with the family and decided to travel to Berlin to seek out her mother's relations because Uh her mother's sister was at the Netherlands Palace. And so she traveled with his brother, Sergei. But once they got to Germany, he just like disappeared. (laughs) So we're in Berlin and Sergei has been apparated. We're looking for our auntie. Yes, So she walks up to the palace, and she realizes that there might not be anyone there that knows her. And she just falls apart. She says, can you understand what it is? Suddenly to know that everything is lost, and that you are left entirely alone. Oh, this is hitting her now. Yes. (laughs) So she's free around Berlin for about a week. Until she jumps, falls, is pushed into the canal. Now, what does she say happened? It's kind of alluded to that she jumped. Yeah, that she was going to kill herself. Right, because she's lost everything. Right, there's nothing left. I mean, imagine how that baby feels, but whatever. You could have been the heir of all the Russias, but have a nice farm family. And so the monarchists did not like this story. Why not? They did not like the idea that she was the mother to a Polish Bolshevik bastard. <laughs> I can see how that would rub monarchists the wrong way. He could have been a Jew. Did it have a tail? I bet it had a tail. <gasps> Probably so, and horns. And this time, no one really knew the true story of what happened to the Romanovs. Everyone knew they were dead. And there was a committee that was formed, and someone went to investigate it. Uh, it must have been like after JFK was assassinated. Yeah, sure. No, it was like this one guy, and they were like, hey, yeah, go investigate this. Don't find anything. <laughs> So nothing like JFK. Right. So the mass execution of the seller's story came out from one man alone, a captured Bolshevik, formerly in service, at Ekaterinburg. And he signed a statement affirming that he'd seen the corpses of the imperial family lying in thick pools of blood on the floor. This document was drafted by the officers of the anti-Bolshevik White Army in Siberia and was signed under torture. And a few days later, their star witness died of typhus. Stepped on a banana peel. One white officer later said that he may have hit him once too often. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. So the idea, this idea of the death of the Romanovs was used by both sides Mm -hmm. as propaganda. Right, because, like, Lenin 
or Lenin's people said there was really no way for the revolution to take hold without this execution, assassination, murder. It was like the communists, the Bolsheviks wouldn't even believe they were serious. It's like we needed this to kick us into high gear to show people what we were willing to do. And the monarchists use this propaganda to serve the double purpose of exposing the Bolsheviks as vicious murderers of helpless women and children, at the same time elevating the Romanovs to the status of martyrs. That's from Tom Mangold said that. And, of course, they pointed to Lenin. Bastard. Yeah. And then, of course, the elders of Zion. What? Oh, the Jews. The Jews. Yeah, those guys. Yeah. There were other stories as well. There were over a dozen sworn statements that the Empress and her daughters were kept in perm and that Anastasia had escaped at one time and then was badly beaten and wounded and had a head injury. Other officials claimed that one of the daughters had escaped, possibly Anastasia, and many Siberian witnesses claimed that there were several search parties out going through their homes looking for female members of the Romanov family. And they were also searching all the trains that were leaving. Many, many, many accounts of this. And so eventually Anna Anderson, or Miss Unknown, or maybe Anastasia, just gets kind of tired of this. Tired of the limelight. Tired of constantly having to meet people. And she kind of runs away. Can we call her Maybe Stasia? Maybe Stasia? (laughs) She eventually ends up at the police inspector's house. The police inspector of Berlin takes her in. She goes to live with him. Yes. Okay. And he actually arranges a meeting with Princess Irene of Prussia. Who is sister, right? And she last saw Anastasia when she was 12. They didn't tell Anna. No. That she was coming. No. Or who she was. No. And Anna, like, refuses to talk to her. And Princess Irene gets pissed off. As a princess is wont to do. And, like, pulls the covers off of her and, like, pulls her up and makes her stand. And her immediate statement after was, I saw immediately that she could not be one of my nieces, even though I had not seen them for nine years. The fundamental facial characteristics could not have altered to that degree. In particular, the position of the eyes, the ears, etc. At first sight, one could perhaps detect a resemblance of the Grand Duchess Tatiana. But later, when asked about this, she said... She is similar, she is similar, but what does that mean if it is not she? So she's saying Tatiana too, huh? Right. So this is really interesting idea of like, maybe she is one of them. I wonder how much it's like, I, I just want to believe, I want to believe that these people, that this is her. That somebody got out, man. Like just that one of them, anybody, somebody, just... Not all of them. She goes around several homes in Berlin. She's even issued a temporary certificate of identity as Anastasia Tchaikovsky. Shut up. Eventually, supposedly, Sergei reappears. No! And has information. Thank God. And then he disappears again. <laughs> he's like Rasputin magic. And he's a sneaky bastard. I mean, to be fair... To get into Germany, you gotta be pretty sneaky at this point. So eventually in 1927, she meets Gleb Botkin, who's the son. Of uh, Eugene? Is he Eugene's son? Yes. Ah! Dr. Botkin's always, like, really pulled on my heartstrings. Like, there's the idea of, like, this sweet old doctor that's there to just care for the family. And, like, the fact that he is executed along with them has always really bothered me. So I'm glad to know his son is still... Alive and in the world, and now gets to get the crazy on him. Tell me what happens. When Gleb saw Anna, there was no question in his mind. 
She mentioned the funny animals he used to draw and other games they'd played as children. His conviction only grew, and he really like became one of her big supporters like for the rest of her life. And you have to wonder, like he lost his dad, and like his country is in turmoil, and this is a link. This is a possible link, and you have to appreciate, no matter how crazy it seems, how powerful this would be for him, this link to his past, this link to his father, right? Right, and, and someone he grew up with, someone he grew up around. Yeah, that has shared memories of those people who were important to him and those times when he was happy. And so, as rumors go... Oh, yay, rumors. More rumors about the huge Romanov fortune that was just sitting around. Yeah, it wasn't sitting around. It wasn't. <laughs> there really wasn't one. Even though we have lots of writing and statements from members of the royal family and members of people that were around her saying she does have a great resemblance and she remembers things and she says things that no one else could know. Like she remembered a waltz they used to play and started to cry. The members of the royal family are not having it. They want part of this fortune. They think maybe Stasia knows where it is? No, they don't want her to claim it. Oh, God. Yeah, right. Which there's this amazing story included in the book that I mentioned earlier about the looting of the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg, where the people stormed the palace. And they talk about, like, people wanting to loot and, like, get everything. And, like, they're tearing it apart. And find- and one man, just random person among them, stops one of them and is like, no, don't. That belongs to the people. And everyone stops and starts very meticulously collecting everything. That's so apocryphal and amazing. <laughs> Don't you love it? There's also a story about a man taking diamond-studded pins out of a pincushion one at a time and saying, this is how we take everything. So there's no fortune, is my point, is there is no fortune. They have taken everything. So we have a lot of people on both sides of the story. But in 1927, a Berlin newspaper released an investigative report claiming to have discovered that Anna Anderson was actually Franziska Shanskowska a Polish factory worker. Ew! She's said to have been declared insane after being injured in a factory explosion, which... Would account for some of the injuries. That's right. And she disappeared shortly before Madame Unknown turned up in Berlin. Well, this is just icky. Her brother signed an affidavit claiming that she looked like his sister. Ruh-roh. Oh no, maybe Stasia. Oh no. Another twist? While this threw a huge king in the story, it also was found out that the Grand Duke of Hesse, who would be related to Alexandra, who would have some claim to the Romanov fortune, I assume, had paid the newspaper. <gasps> no! For the investigation. No! Well, then it can't be true. Later on, jump ahead a little bit, in 1938, she actually met the family. They, the, like, royal family? or no, the, fam- the Polish family. Oh. And they claimed to recognize her. Hmm. Another kink? Mm-hmm. The Nazis had arranged this meeting. No! Everybody's putting their fingers in the maybe stage of pie. That's right. And they were planning to arrest her if she was a fraud. And so the Polish family refused to acknowledge or sign anything that officially stated that she looked like their family member. I can't imagine what motivation they could possibly have for withholding that information. Can you? Only like, hey, if we say this is her, our daughter, she will be taken by the Nazis. Oh, 
I see it now. If we it say now. she's not, she gets to go live as a princess. Okay. Yeah, if it were my daughter, I would I would probably be like, <laughs> I don't know. It's weird. It's weird that people think she's related to us, right? So the royal family finally kind of got together in October 1928 when the Dowager Empress Maria died. And the 12 nearest relations of the Tsar met at the funeral and signed a declaration that denounced officially Anderson as an imposter. Dun, dun, dun. And this came to be known as the Copenhagen Statement. And it said, our sense of duty compels us to state that the story is only a fairy tale. Oh my God, really? The memory of our dear departed would be tarnished. If we allow this fantastic story to spread and gain any credence. And by our sense of duty, we mean our bank accounts. So Ann Anderson really went into kind of a tailspin. It's very self-destructive behavior. Stories of her throwing tantrums, killing her pet parakeet. <gasps> oh, Anna. That kind of thing will get you put back in the mental institution, baby. And on one occasion, running around naked on the roof. <laughs> Yeah, you're going back to the cuckoo's nest, Anna. Stop it. So members of the monarchist group got her a lawyer to try to prove that she was truly Anastasia. Well, they can just do DNA tests and they'll be set, right? Yeah. Now, what year are we in? <laughs> the 20s. Okay, no, no DNA The 30s. Okay. This became the longest running court case in Germany ever. <laughs> There's some stuff in Germany to be sorted out, man. Like, really? This is what we keep going the longest? So we have lots of testimony and lots of things that go into this trial. Of course, you have all of the eyewitness testimony. Okay. Yeah, so reliable. I may have alluded to the fact that eyewitness testimony can be a bit wonky. So eyewitness misidentification is the leading cause of erroneous convictions, harmless. Innocence Project states that 75% of the first 292 DNA exonerated cases were results of misidentification given by eyewitnesses. So very reliable. Yeah. One factor in evaluating eyewitness identification is familiarity with a person. It does make it more credible if this is not someone you've seen one time pass by, if it's somebody that you are habitually exposed to. There are different cognitive processes and neural systems involved in recognizing familiar faces as compared to unfamiliar faces. Identifying familiar faces requires little effort, and we can do it kind of despite lighting or viewpoint or expressions or disguises. If we know the face, we're going to recognize the face because it's in our database. A study cites that there's a false alarm rate of about 23% where unfamiliar faces are identified as familiar, which is interesting because it's like we're trying to put them in our pre-existing framework. Right, right? kind of like what's happening here. All the people that have seen pictures, have seen them from afar. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, it's definitely Tatiana. It's definitely Anastasia. Which is so funny to me because like, when I meet people, automatically I'm like, you know what celebrity you kind of look like? That's a normal icebreaker thing for me. I can't imagine, like, going with it till this point. You know, like, you probably are Robert Downey Jr. Let's just go with that story. But 42% of people correctly identified classmates that they'd seen over a year ago. 
Now, this is a group of people that were given yearbook photos and told that they needed to identify who they were. And they're from a small class where they would have been in close proximity to each other, presumably at least for one school year. And so 42% of the time, they're able to correctly identify them. But you have to think that some of those people are going to be their very close friends. And to be familiar with somebody does not mean to be best buddies with somebody. It means to be habitually exposed. Or to see them in passing, see them in the hallway, mm-hmm. see them in the gym. So in another study, if a familiar person was put in a lineup, people could identify them correctly. 62.9% of the time. So still sort of low. Extremely low. I think that's sort of low. When Just this saying. is used as like main proof. evidence. Proof. proof. So you can see that these people saying, oh, she looks like her, are really pretty worthless. We have other evidence that's presented. Dr. Mina Becker, who's this noted graphologist. So she keeps being called a graphologist. Graphology is like personality analysis taken from handwriting. Right. And from everything I've read, and I really looked into this, she's really not a graphologist. She's a document examiner. Right. It's just, I think the, the names were just convoluted then. You know what? I debunked graphology in my sixth grade science fair project, single-handedly. So this was actually, and this was a lot later, this is in the 60s, she was the graphologist who had confirmed that Anne Frank's diaries were actually hers. Oh, good for her. And she analyzed Anna Anderson and Anastasia's handwriting and deemed it identical. And and there were other physical features that were, you know, they thought were really proof, such as the scars and... The ears. Yeah, and they had numerous, numerous anthropologists examine it. They were on both sides. Some people said yes, some people said no. I feel like that should be science. But since both sides cannot agree, they agreed to have one more study done. Okay. And they pulled the most renowned Professor Otto Reich. Otto Reich. He was the founder of the German Anthropological Society. Okay, so Otto Reich got cred. So as we've talked about in the past, Germans loved their anthropology. Oh, did they ever. Das Juden es monkeys. They thought that the Jewish not as highly evolved in like constructed physical anthropology to support it. Well, and also the support of the Aryan race. Right. As well. Like, yes, das Juden is not das Aryan. <laughs> Origins of a science. Nine. So he actually did a very thorough analysis of photographs. Of photographs? Anna Anderson did allow him to photograph her as well. And he said that, quote, such coincidence between two human faces is not possible unless they are the same person or identical twins. That sounds pretty definitive, Otto. But I'm going to put a little little kink in him. (laughs) Oh, please do. Put put some kink in my Otto. (laughs) Some of his major works were looking at blood types. And he studied correlation between which blood type a person had and whether they were of German ancestry. He claimed that the three blood types, A, B, and O, were each originally attached to European, Asian, or Native American races, and that interracial marriage had diluted them over the centuries. So, that literally says to me, das Aryan is not das Juden. And he was, like, arrested by Americans after World War II and held for 16 months before being released. He literally wrote a book that said, like, here's science for racism. Yeah, he was trying to prove that, which the Germans were all about. And another uh, psychologist, Dr. Luther Nobel, 
stated that no mental illness of any kind exists. It seems impossible that her knowledge of many small details is due to anything but her own personal experience. He also added that it was inconceivable that an imposter should behave as the patient does now. Okay, so I'm gonna I'm gonna have to uh, disagree with Dr. Noble. I'm gonna say that if you've been through some major trauma and you're in a very raw state and you perceive your survival as being based on your ability to remember the details that people suggest to you, you might be able to remember the details. Yeah, I'm going to have to agree with you too. Okay, that's my non-medical opinion. So in 1970, they're finally issued a verdict. And? Neither proven or disproven. No! She still may be Stasia! No! Yes, she is still maybe Stasia. No! Do they send her to Siberia and say, go live in exile in a tower and wait for a handsome prince to come and rescue you, sweet princess? Yes. Awesome! What happens? Not really. Well, so remember Boykin? Yeah. Her big supporter, mm-hmm. the son of Dr. Boykin. He is actually living in Charlottesville, Virginia. Good for him. And he is friends with this local historian. No. Jack Manahan. I think I'm going to like Jack. <laughs> Jack is quite a kook, and I highly suggest you Google video of him. All right, so Boykin pays for Anastasia to come to the United States. He introduces them. Right before Anna's visa expires, they marry. Shut up. That's love, love, love. So what is what kind of history is he into? Like, uh, We'll guess. I um I hope I hope he's a Russian history enthusiast. Well, of course he is. Oh my god! And she's like the ultimate artifact. Yes. And yes. he was actually twenty years her junior. She's been collected. Yeah, and they married in 1968. So mm. a little before the the actual results came out. And he described himself as a grand duke in waiting. Oh my god! I hope he says it with a southern accent. Oh, for sure. I'm a grand duke in waiting. Yeah. This is my wife, maybe Stasia Anna Anderson. And he called her Anastasia. Of course he did. (laughs) It's charming. In 1978, with an interview with Anna, she said, How shall I tell you who I am? In which way? Can you tell me that? Can you really prove to me who you are? You can believe it, or you don't believe it. It doesn't matter. I spit on you. She does say I spit on you. Like, that's, that's actually not a joke. So she kind of just continues to go downhill. In November 1983, she's institutionalized. Oh, Anna. Her husband, the Grand Duke in waiting. Does he come to her rescue? He does. Is he a knight in shining armor? He kidnaps her from Shut the asylum. Up! <laughs> and they're on the run for three days before they're captured. <laughs> and she's returned to the asylum. She eventually dies on February 12th. 1984 of pneumonia with her death there's still no answer right because nobody knows what happened to the romanovs even that point right that point there was still plenty of people that believed that she was anastasia including peter kurth who wrote anastasia the riddle of anna anderson which is where i got all the history from it was published in i think 84 so right after she died? Right. Yeah. It is, it's very fascinating. Oh my gosh. Okay, so Anna Anderson is no longer living. Now the last of the Romanovs really is dead. And we move on without answers. Until answers come. That's right. Because this story, the story of a terrible massacre of an escaped princess rescued by 
a guard that saw her beauty, that wanted to save her from this terrible place, of someone that was taken in by the community and regained her royalty status among them. The story's not over. No, unfortunately it's not. Unbeknownst to the rest of the world, in 1979, a pair of amateur sleuths had found a mass grave, but they couldn't reveal that to the world because communists were still in control of Mother Russia. So they sat on this information. For years. Until 1991. The fall of the Soviet Union. Correct. And when communism falls, now's the time to tell the story of the monarchs and to let it be known, because you know that no one can repress it. What did they find? They found nine bodies. They found Dr. Bodkin, who was identified by his dentures. They found two servants and a cook. They find five other skeletons near Ekaterinburg. There were still two bodies missing. They find, I mean, just shards of bone, but then they piece them all together. And because there are photographs of the girls with their heads shaved after the measles episode, which was going on at the time where they were being booted from Tsarship, they're able to look at the contours of the skull and sort of conclusively identify which skull belongs to which Grand Duchess. And then obviously the age on the adult skeletons tells them, you know, this is most likely Nicholas, this is most likely Alexander, and they're able to kind of figure out that they have the Tsar, the Tsarina, and three Grand Duchesses. Alexei is nowhere to be found. And depending on who you ask, either Marie or Anastasia is unaccounted for. So there's still the mystery. This still does not solve our question. No, Anastasia could still be out there. And they were able to confirm that they were the Romanovs. They used samples of British DNA. British royal family DNA. Right. And showed that they were related. Now, a forensic expert from the United States was consulted to look over the bones before they were interned. And when she saw the skeleton that they said, this is Anastasia, she said no. She said that all the growth plates refused. And that did not make her think that it was the girl who had just turned 17. She said that had to be Marie. And she wouldn't sign off on it. So the controversy continues. Despite her opinion, the family was laid to rest in 1998 in St. Petersburg. They were all buried together in the St. Peter and Paul Cathedral, and that's where all the czars of all the Russias are buried, since way, way back to Peter the Great. But there are still two bodies missing. And this is where we get another twist in the story. Another kink? There's still a missing body of Anastasia. Possibly. Or Marie, depending on who you ask. We still don't have any conclusion of whether Anna Anderson was Anastasia or not. But now they have something to test against, right? And this pesky science gets in the way of our story. Oh, science nine, stop it. They used a sample of Anna Anderson's DNA and they looked at the mitochondrial DNA from a sample of intestines that was from a prior surgery she had and also from samples of hair that the Grand Duke-in-waiting had. (laughs) I'm sure he had all of her hair. He had a doll made of it. And they were able to conclude, actually, that it matched a man named Carl Mucher. What does that matter? Who's Carl Mucher? He's the great-nephew of Franziska Szanskowska. The Polish dude? The Polish family. No! She was genetically related to them. Well, you know what? 
They did her a real solid back in the day with the Nazis then. They really did. I mean, I think that's a very loving thing to do. And so there ends the story of Anna Anderson. While it's incredibly interesting, we still don't know if Anastasia escaped. Right. Because as they were interred in the great cathedral, they were then canonized in 2000, the entire family, as saints. Sort of. Well, they were. (laughs) Meh. They canonized them as passion bearers. The Orthodox Church outside of Russia, which is everyone else, had already canonized them and the servants as new martyrs. New martyrs are people who are killed by a heretical government or a non-Christian government because of their faith, whereas a passion bearer is merely someone who accepts their fate with a Christ-like resign. So you're in low-grade saint status. They're not the fancy saints in the Eastern Orthodox Church. The patriarch of the Eastern Orthodox Church didn't show up to the funeral last minute. Yeah, he said God knows who they are. Oh, no, that was the guy who did the actual funeral (laughs) in the mass or in the ceremony. He's like not acknowledging their names, will not say their names out loud and covers it by saying God knows who they are. So that's this kind of like subtle middle finger action happening, if you ask me. And I grew up Southern, and I've been to brunch with a bunch of old biddies. I know what subtle middle fingers look like. (laughs) But they did find some more bodies. Yes, in July 2007, the last two Romanov skeletons were found. Using DNA analysis, they were able to determine that the smallest was Alexei, and the other is either Maria or Anastasia whichever missing Grand Duchess they had. So no more missing Grand Duchesses. So putting on this information, you kind of get a theory of what happened. The executioners first dumped the corpses in a mine. Then the bodies of the 11 victims were loaded onto a truck to be transported to a deeper mine. The truck was stuck in mud. They took the bodies of Alexei and either Maria or Anastasia into the forest. They burned them. They doused them with acid. And they buried them. And then they buried the rest of the bodies in the old Kaptakovskia Road, where they were later found. You know, an interesting thing about these two other bodies is that they have not been laid to rest with the rest of their family in St. Petersburg. They were still locked in storage in the state archives in downtown Moscow. till 2014, when the church took custody of the remains... The Russian Orthodox Church still refuses to acknowledge the remains as royal. They say the tests were bungled deliberately. This is, of course, yeah, people that won't give their names. And that the government's lying. The government's never lied. Especially the Russian government. <laughs> and there's also an element of their saints. So if they had these saints' bodies, they would need specific rites. They would be relics. Mm-hmm. They'd have to be interred a certain way. And you also have Bishop Tikhon. Who's this kind of shadowy Orthodox figure who is Putin's like Rasputin? Yes, <laughs> and he states, that, "Yeah, they've got the bodies, and they're going to spend a few years further testing them to determine." There is going to be nothing left. No, they will find nothing. They will lose them. Yeah, I know. And they disinterred the rest of the family too. Three times. Putin has consented to this open-ended inquiry by the church. I just, I find it incredible that they're still caught up in political turmoil. Right, you have this journalist from Russia writing about this, Nuchinko, and she says, In death, the two prime adversaries of the 1917 revolution, the Tsar, Nicholas, Nicholas, and 
Linen, who is linen, like our, our mummy, our, like, with a humidifier installed in in the body. That right. guy yeah. sitting in a glass case in the red square. Mm-hmm. Yes, former red square. They're both stuck in limbo. No one can decide what to do with either body. Together, the remains represent unfinished business of a particularly violent, tumultuous century for Russia. Russia cannot say goodbye to its twentieth century. And it's not hard to understand why people really do want that horrible end to this fascinating, beautiful, dynamic family, that last remnant of glorious royals. Why they don't want that to be the ending. It's easy to understand why people can't accept the reality of this heinous murder of a family. Why they need to believe that it's just a story. But I don't think it is just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.